I was baptized into Christ on July 22nd, 2001, uh, one day after my wife's birthday, uh, not the year she was born, but the actual date. She was born in 1990. That would be kind of (laughs) weird. I was only 13 years old at the time, uh, the same age that my oldest son is now, and I remember being so excited about this decision. It's really hard to explain, but I was a brand new person when I came up out of the water that day. And after I was baptized, I still had a lot of questions, and thankfully, I was a part of a youth group during that time where the adult volunteers, they truly loved God and they loved the youth. They gave so much of their time, talent, and treasure to serve God by serving the youth and the church. And today, I look back on that time. I think of these people more as youth coaches. In a lot of ways, they coached us as we took the first steps um, in our faith journey, They provided opportunities for the youth to serve in the various ministries in the church, uh, to go on mission trips, and to ask questions about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Now, early on, I had a lot of questions about the Bible. I still do to this day. One of the questions that I had was this. um, Now that I'm a Christian, what's next? Another way you could say this is, what in the world does a Christian do? (laughs) I knew that Christians went to church on Sundays, but surely there's more to it than that. I'm glad that I was able to begin maturing in my faith, you know, being part of a youth group like the one I was a part of, because during that time I read and heard some very important verses for the very first time. Uh, Verses and passages like Matthew chapter 5, 14 through 16, which says, You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So I always went to large schools, several hundred in my middle school, uh, over 3,000 in my high school. And to say I felt hidden is an understatement. I remember on graduation day, uh, there were people walking across the stage that I'd never seen in my life. (laughs) It's easy to feel rejected and alone during those middle school and high school years. Uh, But in God's eyes, I was learning that I was now part of his family, uh, the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. You know what? I, I never felt hidden in my youth group. And it was there that I began to learn what it means to go out into the world and be a light for Jesus. I heard verses like Romans 12, 4 through 6, that says, Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so like our fingers and toes and elbows and eyes, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body, and we all belong to each other. And it's in His grace that God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So I learned that I was part of something bigger than myself. Uh, Being part of God's family means being part of his body, the church. The church is made up of many parts, just like the human body. And each part we learn in scripture, each part has value, each part is needed and has a job to do that helps the whole body function in a healthy way. In his grace, God gives his body, the church, different spiritual gifts so that each part can live for him well. Are you living for Jesus well? I also heard verses like 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. One of my favorite verses early on as as a new Christian. 
It says, so we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. I first heard that word ambassador in one of my middle school history classes. I was curious this week, I went back and just thought, what does the dictionary say about this word? Webster's Dictionary defines ambassador this way. It's a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government as the resident representative of his or her own government for a special assignment. So if you work as an ambassador for the United States of America, you would be sent out with special assignments to other countries as a representative of your own country. So how does that translate to being a follower of Jesus? Well, we learn that we are Christ's ambassadors. As a new Christian, I learned that I was called to be Christ's ambassador. I represent Jesus wherever I go, whatever I say, whatever I do. And while these three verses and truths don't, don't make up an exhaustive list or job description of what a Christian is supposed to do, early on they were very helpful in helping me take the next steps. Maybe you have verses like that or passages like that that were very helpful for you early on in your faith. In Luke chapter 10, we find four passages that illustrate the ministry of every Christian believer. And this chapter really helps answer the question, what in the world does a Christian do? And so as we begin a new series today, we're going to learn more about how we are called to be Christ's ambassadors, sent out to represent him to the rest of the world. And in weeks to come, we're going to talk about how we were meant to serve God with joy. There's joy in ministry. There's joy in serving. There's joy in following Jesus. We're going to talk about how we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves and how we were created to be worshipers who give our whole lives to God. You know, whether we're at home, at work, traveling, or with friends, our highest privilege and our greatest joy in life is to know and live for Jesus. It's to glorify God with our lives. And so what in the world does a Christian do? That's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Let's begin our time with prayer, and then we'll dive into today's passage. Holy Spirit, we know that you are our teacher. I pray that you would help me get out of the way today and that it would be your words that people take with them. I pray that you would uh, convict us where we need conviction today, that you would encourage us in those areas of our lives where we need encouragement, that you would make clear uh, your word so that we can be your hands and your feet as we seek to live faithfully for you. I thank you for bringing us together today. I ask that you would be glorified above all else, that this time would be for the good of your people. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, we're going to work through today's passage um, in several different parts. Sometimes we read it all in one setting. Um, we're going to break it up into different parts today just because of the length of it. And so if you're taking notes, the application will be throughout the message. And uh, we're going to begin with just verse 1. So Luke chapter 10, verse 1, this is what we read. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead of him in pairs to all the towns and places he planned to visit. And so if you remember in Luke 9, our previous series was in Luke chapter 9, Jesus called together his 12 apostles, and the Bible tells us he gave them power and authority to do things like cast out demons, 
to heal the sick and to tell everyone about the kingdom of God. And really telling everyone about the kingdom of God, that was the main focus. That was the main purpose. These other things, uh, I think, were just evidences of uh, God sending them, um, and they reinforced the message. He sent them out to the various towns and villages throughout Galilee for um, these special assignments. And when they finished their work, the Bible tells us they met back up with Jesus. They had some amazing stories to share about all that God had done. And so you jump forward. Here in chapter 10, uh, Jesus now chose 72 other disciples. He sent them out ahead of him in pairs to all the places he planned to visit. Now there are some similarities in the assignments that were given, but the men Jesus chose in this chapter, um, it's important to note, they were not called apostles. These were anonymous disciples, men who were learning from Jesus to live like Jesus. We'll continue with verse 2. It says, these were his instructions to them. So he's calling them together. He's sending them out in pairs. And here's the instruction. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. So these 72 disciples were sent out ahead of Jesus, but there was a significant problem. Can you identify the problem? See, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. I imagine Jesus looking out on the crowds of people who were following him during that time, possibly even during harvest time, and pointing out to the disciples that the harvest is ripe. It's ready for picking he pointed out an important truth, that there were a lot of people who were ready to give their lives to him if somebody would just show them how. The same thing is true today. There are a lot of people right here in our own community, I believe, who are ready to give their lives to Jesus if somebody would just take the time to show them how. And once again, Jesus chose to see a problem as an opportunity, And so I would say before we go any further, we need to consider for ourselves if we have the same attitude and outlook as Jesus, or are we walking around feeling defeated in life and in our faith? Do we have a sense that there's no hope? It's easy to see what's happening in our country and around the world and develop an attitude that believes there's just no hope. It's easy to assume that the world is worse off today than it was in the first century, when this was written, but I assure you it's not. I'm convinced that the situation we read about in Luke 10 is not entirely different from what we see and experience today. You see, during Jesus' day, there, there were a lot of lost people who were looking for hope and purpose in all of the wrong places. The government was corrupt. The religious elite were leading people in the wrong direction. And today, we see much of the same. False teaching was everywhere. People spent their time worshiping man-made idols and false gods. Today, we might call these the idols of identity, the idols of money and possessions, jobs, status, physical appearance, uh, the, the idols of entertainment, sex, and comfort, relationships. And since it's football season, I'll just call it what it is. It's the idol of sports. How often do we allow things like football and sports to get in the way of God using us for his kingdom? I think if we were very honest today, for many of us, football has become an idol in our lives. We worship it. 
We put other things aside just so that we can watch it and experience it. And in and of itself, it's not inherently bad, but how we use it can be. I'm a glass mostly full kind of guy. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. I believe most Christians you know, truly have a sincere love for God and for people, but in a lot of ways, we just don't know what steps to take to be effective ambassadors for Jesus. And this makes a lot of sense when you consider the amount of false truth claims that we are bombarded with on a daily basis. We see the problem, right? That the harvest is great and the workers are few. And we end up feeling like there's nothing we can do because the job seems overwhelming. And so we reduce following Jesus to just coming and sitting in a chair on Sunday morning. In the latter part of verse 2, Jesus taught his disciples what they should do about the problem. He doesn't just say there's a problem. He gives them a solution. I love this. He tells them to pray to the Lord. Pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. So Jesus' answer to the problem of a great harvest and few workers is prayer. It's prayer. The first step is not to get a bunch of people together and have a strategy session and to just talk about it. The first step is always prayer. Two Saturdays ago, about 16 people met uh, to do a prayer walk through the neighborhood around the church. And I'd be lying to you if I told you that I wasn't a little discouraged um, when we were done. You see, in a church of well over 130 people, only 16 people showed up to pray for our neighborhoods. Now, don't get me wrong. I think God used the group that showed up. God can use one or two people who are willing to give up their time and, and to come and to pray and to trust God with that. And I know schedules get in the way, but I, I couldn't help but feeling discouraged when we left. And I debated whether or not I should even share this with you this morning, but as I was writing this service, uh, this sermon uh, at my desk, the only thing that came to mind was this. It's how I, I want God to break our hearts for the things that break His. And later this month, we're actually going to have a prayer weekend in the church. And I don't say this to guilt you into something. Prayer should always be our first line of offense never our last line of defense. And so as a church, we should be known as a praying church. A healthy church is a praying church, amen? And so we've got this weekend carved out where you can sign up to come and pray for our nation, for our church, for our neighborhood, for our daycare, for the persecuted church around the world. A healthy church is a praying church. And I'll tell you what, it's kind of like coming to church on Sunday morning you know, it's hard to get out of bed sometimes, but when you come, you never regret it. Prayer's the same way. I've never talked to someone who said, you know, I regretted praying. We can do all the planting and watering that we want, all the ministry gatherings we want throughout the week, but we need to remember that God is the one who ultimately provides the growth. At the same time, we often forget this critically important step. If we truly believe that there's a great harvest of people right here in our own community, then we must begin with prayer. This church is not planted in this community simply to survive. We exist to thrive by reaching more people with the good news of the gospel. So what, what is the vision that you have for your church? Think about that. If you've never thought about it before, write some things down. What is the vision that you have for your church? I have a very large, optimistic vision for this group. 
I see us being a light in our community, eventually outgrowing this space because of the sheer number of people who will be reached. I see a church filled with godly and healthy marriages and families. I see people growing in their faith, learning to serve God with the gifts that he's given us. Friends, we are here to make more and better disciples. That is our mission. If our vision for OCC is that we would just stay the same, then we're not taking seriously Jesus' solution to the problem. You see, we exist for the salvation of others, not for the maintaining of ourselves. We should have a hope and an expectation for growth. We have God's word, which is alive and powerful. So to think that we cannot grow explosively is to have a low view of the power of the gospel. I don't believe we're lacking any of the ingredients needed to continue to grow numerically and spiritually right here at OCC. God is still in the business of saving people. Amen? So if we have a God-sized vision and if we take Jesus' solution seriously by praying to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest, there's absolutely nothing that can stop us from doing the things that God has called us to do. So do we have the desire to be ambassadors for God? Do we have the faith to trust him? Is prayer our first line of offense instead of our last line of defense? Prayer is the first way that you can actually participate in God's mission. It's something that we can all do. It's how you can get in the game. We'll continue with seven verses here in verses three through nine. Jesus said, now go. He told him the problem, he gave him the solution, and he says, now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this home. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. And don't hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. If you enter a town and it welcomes you, eat whatever is set before you. Heal the sick and tell them the kingdom of God is near you now. Notice that Jesus did not say, here's the problem and the solution is to pray. And then after you pray, I want you to stay right where you're at and just hope that something miraculous happens. It's not what he said. The very next set of instructions after he told them to pray was to go. First we pray, but then we act on those prayers. We go. And Jesus said, there's a big problem here. The harvest is great. The workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into the fields. Friends, as followers of Jesus, you are an answer to that prayer. You're an answer to that prayer. You're the person God wants to use as his ambassador. Now, how we go is very important. I want to spend some time talking about that today. If you're taking notes, the first thing is that we are to go in teamwork. We go in teamwork. Jesus didn't send the disciples out by themselves. He sent them out in pairs or more. Many Christians make the mistake of thinking that they can live the life that God has called them to live in isolation. The only thing that isolation does is it breeds anxiety and depression. 
Isolation isn't good. We were made for relationship. And in ministry, we were made to serve as a team. Ministry takes a team. There's encouragement when we go together. There's confidence when we go together. We learn from each other when we go together. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12. This is our memory verse for today. It says, A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquer. Three are even better, for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. Do you get a sense of teamwork there? We're called to go in teamwork. Now, I believe that before we even consider starting a new ministry in the church, there should be at least three people who share the same vision and are willing to work together as a team. We shouldn't start new ministries with one person. That doesn't make any sense. If a triple braided cord is not easily broken, you know, if two standing back to back can conquer, imagine a cord of eight, ten, or, or twelve Imagine what that would be like. Imagine how effective we could be as a church if all 130 plus of us were on the same page and shared the same vision. So we go in teamwork. We serve together. Amen? The second thing is that we go in wisdom. We go in wisdom. We have realistic expectations about what it is that Jesus has called us to do. Jesus told the disciples that he was sending them out as lambs among wolves. That was the descriptor. (laughs) That doesn't sound very nice, does it? Wolves are natural enemies of lambs or sheep. So what's the lesson here? In an effort to make more and better disciples, we can expect challenges. We can expect trouble. In this life, you will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Ministry is not always easy, is it? Sometimes it's messy. I think I've heard that somewhere. We're not going out into a world that loves the Lord. When Jesus sent the disciples out, he told them that they would experience hostility and even rejection. In some cases, it would be entire towns and villages that rejected them. So as you serve in the various ministries in the church, whether it's children's ministry or our youth ministry, our missions, our worship team, our fellowship team, whatever it is, you will experience challenges. You should expect that. It's important to know this ahead of time and to serve with wisdom. Understanding that challenges are not a reason to give up. I see far too often, whether it's a tense relationship or something that doesn't go your way or You know, maybe you have a suggestion that's not taken in a various ministry. I see people giving up all too soon. Challenges are not a reason to give up. Instead, they're actually opportunities for growth. I believe Jesus said that. That these trials and troubles that we experience, they will develop in us perseverance. And perseverance will develop character and character hope. They they make us more like Jesus. So we couldn't become more like Jesus unless we have difficult times. And specifically, unless we learn to rely on God to help us through those times. To serve in the way that he's called us to serve. So we go in wisdom. The the third thing is that we go in urgency. We go in urgency. In Luke chapter 10, verse 4, Jesus told the disciples not to take anything with them and not to get distracted along the way. 
He was teaching them about how there's urgency in ministry. He wasn't telling them to be rude to people or, or to go unprepared. He was saying, don't get so distracted from your mission that you completely get off track. Don't get distracted from your God-given purpose. So we've talked about this before, but mission drift is a real thing. Mission drift. If we're not careful, it's easy for us to become distracted by focusing on all the wrong things. The most important job that we have as believers is to be ambassadors for Jesus. We're called to represent him to the rest of the world. And so however God calls you to serve, remember um, that you're to go in urgency. This isn't being rushed. It's simply keeping your focus on the purpose to which you were called. Don't get distracted. I believe that's one of the reasons that God gave his church elders, uh, spiritual leaders in the church, to help keep his flock focused on where they're supposed to go. In a lot of ways, they're there to protect, to guard doctrine, to protect the mission and the vision. So we go in urgency. And the final thing is that we go in trust. We go in trust. What does that mean? When Jesus sent out the 12 in Luke 9, and then the 72 in Luke 10, everything about their assignments required trust. They took nothing with them as they went. They were told to rely on the hospitality of others, and they were instructed to serve sacrificially. So being an ambassador for Jesus requires sacrifice and trust. I believe that God will always ask you to sacrifice something when he calls you to serve him. You'll have to learn how to trust him to provide. Ministry requires sacrifice. And I'm not just talking about things that you sign up for and serve in the church. We're all called to be ministers. I love what um, Al LaRue did when he was here. He was the uh, second official pastor here at OCC, um, but there was a guy as an interim between uh, he and Burdette Wakeman. And uh, there's a video that we're going to watch uh, at our 50th anniversary. I'm not going to give it away, but one of the things that Al focused on during his time here was to help the congregation understand that we are all ministers. It's not just one of us, that we're all ministers. In fact, on the sign outside the church, they took off the pastor's name and the associate pastor's name during the time, and they said, minister, all of us. I love that. Maybe we should do that. Minister, all of us. You're, you're a minister if you're in Christ. And God will always ask you to sacrifice something when he calls you to serve him. And so the question becomes, are you willing to make uh, sacrifices to your time and comforts in order to be an ambassador for Jesus? Or are you content just being comfortable? Ministry requires sacrifice and trust. And so the last... Uh, big chunk of scripture here. The last seven verses, I'm going to read that and we'll unpack it together. Uh, verses 10 through 16, it says, but if a town refuses to welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we wipe even the dust of your town from our feet to show that we've abandoned you to your fate. And know this, the kingdom of God is near. I assure you, even wicked Sodom will be better off than such a town on judgment day. What sorrow awaits you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, for if the miracles I did in you had been done in wicked Tyre and Sidon, their people would have repented of their sins long ago, 
clothing themselves in burlap and throwing ashes on their heads to show their remorse. Yes, Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. And you people of Capernaum, will you be honored in heaven? No, you will go down to the place of the dead. And then he said to the disciples, Anyone who accepts your message is also accepting me. And anyone who rejects you is rejecting me. And anyone who rejects me is rejecting God who sent me. So prayer is our first line of offense, right? We begin with prayer, and then we're called to go as ambassadors, and we do that in teamwork. We do that in wisdom, in urgency, and in trust. But we also need to honestly teach people about God's warning. Regardless of the people's refusal to receive the disciples' message in Luke 10, the kingdom of God was near. When these disciples were rejected, they were told to warn people about the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Notice what Jesus said in verse 12, that it would be more bearable for Sodom than for those who rejected his message. And to learn more about the destruction of Sodom, you can read Genesis 19. I'll give you a hint, it's not pretty. In a nutshell, Jesus was was saying, it's extremely serious to reject me. You know, often our need for salvation doesn't make sense unless we understand the depth of our sin and our need for a Savior. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. We're all sinners who are in need of a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. Part of the call to be ambassadors for Jesus is to understand that eternal life and eternal punishment are at stake. John chapter 1 verse 14 says that the word became flesh, talking about Jesus, he is the word, and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, and then listen to this last phrase, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. And so as we go out into the world as ambassadors for Jesus, we're to do so in grace and in truth. Jesus was full of both grace and truth. He wasn't 50% grace and 50% truth. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. He always had exactly the right balance in his response to people and situations. And so grace and truth meld together perfectly in the gospel message. The truth is that every single person has fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And because of our sin, we deserve God's justice and judgment. Grace is seen in the fact that God's justice and judgment have been satisfied and his truth upheld through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Jesus' work on the cross is the only act that can perfectly deliver God's grace to those who accept it through faith in him. And so as we go out into the world, we're to do so in grace and in truth. And there's so much more to that that we could learn and will continue to learn. But remember that. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. I want to end our time together today with verse 17 because I believe it provides a bridge to next week's passage. And this is what we read. When the 72 disciples returned, 
So this is what happens when they came back. They joyfully reported to him. Now, did they get rejected in some places? Yes. Did things not always go their way in some places? Absolutely. But listen to this. They joyfully reported to Jesus. Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. There's so much joy in knowing and living for Jesus. God wants us in the field, and there's a big harvest to bring in. And next week, we're going to talk about how there's, there's so much joy in being a follower of Jesus and how we can keep that joy when times are tough. Luke chapter 10 really reads continuously. Really, the whole gospel does. But we don't have four years to preach through all of Luke today. And so I want to leave you with that thought today. Do you have joy in serving Jesus? Do you know true joy in your life? We're going to talk about that next week. But in the meantime, remember that you are called to be an ambassador for Jesus, called to be someone who represents him wherever you go. And so may that be our prayer today.